In Ephesians chapter 2, if you will turn in your Bible there, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter number 2, Ephesians 2. And as soon as you find it, stand to your feet with me, if you will, please. Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bible, a very familiar passage of Scripture today. Talk about going back to the basics. This is basic, isn't it? Verse 8, Ephesians 2 and 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Notice that verse. What a great, great verse. We are saved by grace through faith, not by faith, but through faith. It has nothing to do with us. It is the gift of God not of works, meaning human effort, human works, human good deeds, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And you may be seated. If you're here today and you would want to be saved, to become a Christian, this is as good a verse as I could use in the Bible to talk to you about. If on the other hand, you're a member of the church and you've sat here for years and years, this is a great verse of Scripture for you to be able to determine, are you truly saved? Did you get it right? Do you truly understand what the Bible talk, uh, teaches about this matter of salvation? And these three verses are about as basic verses as one can find dealing with the doctrine of salvation. Back in the 14 and 15, 1600s, we had what was called the Reformation. It was an effort to reform the establishment church of that day. And the Reformers, first and most of all, studied the doctrines of salvation. They studied what is really essential and necessary to know that you're saved, to have assurance of your salvation. And they put a lot of emphasis on this passage of Scripture right here. Because through the years, the whole idea of salvation had become rather muddled in people's minds, and they mixed works plus God's grace. So the Reformers came up with this slogan that they used during those days, and it's a very famous one. They said, "By salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone. And you, emphasize, and you understand the emphasis on alone or by itself. They, used, they said it in the Latin. They used the word sola, which means solely, only. And they said sola gratis, by grace alone. Sola fidelis, by faith alone. Sola dio, for the glory of God alone. And this was the watch cry of the Reformation era. And nothing is more important today in your spiritual life than this concept. By grace, through faith, 
alone. Notice verse 8 with me. You see the words there, or verse 9 rather. For by grace are you saved. By grace are you saved. And so I remind you today that salvation is the work of God, the work of God, and I emphasize again the word alone. You see, look up here and listen, engage with me for just a moment, every person in the house. You and I have absolutely nothing to do with whether or not we're saved. Salvation is of the Lord. It says that in Jonah. It says that in Psalms. It says that in Habakkuk. It says that in Romans. It is a repeated message of the Scripture that salvation is a work of God and a work of God alone. We don't do anything to help him out. If I'm saved today, I can make no contribution whatever myself toward my salvation. We call that grace. And so grace is God offering his favor to us. It is God extending to us his love. It is God giving us his compassion or extending to us compassion and kindness and mercy. It is God reaching out to us when we have no interest no desire whatever for him that God comes to us. He takes the initiative. He is the searcher and we are the searchee. All through the Bible, salvation is always God taking the initiative. It's the shepherd going into the wilderness and looking for the one lost sheep when 99 of them are in the fold. Always it is a search theology through the New Testament. It is God initiating our salvation. And his grace then is free to us. It's undeserved. There is nothing we can do to pay him back. There is nothing I can do to earn my salvation. I I try to imagine sometimes these things and, and, and create a mental picture of them. And my mental picture of the grace of God is Jesus Christ, as it were, and I have no idea what he looks like except that he is in a body, he's a man, but Jesus Christ standing in heaven and his hands are extended. Those hands represent mercy and compassion and love and grace in its ultimate form. And here he is standing with his hands extended as if to say, come to me. You come to me. I've already taken care of this. I've already suffered for sin. I've already paid the price. You come to me. And when you come to me, I will meet your need. I will never cast you out. Jesus standing there with those extended hands, offering grace mercy, love, acceptance. Now, you would think everybody would, would accept that, wouldn't you? I mean, what person in their right mind would say, no, Lord, I don't want that. Nobody that I could possibly imagine, and yet multitudes do every day. I want to give you the three 
negative responses that I often hear from people. I hear people, and I may not hear all of these, some of these objections come from the fact that people, this is the way they think, and when I talk to them, this is obviously what they're thinking. First of all, people reject God's grace because salvation being free, people take it for granted. I think that the grace of God is the most taken for granted thing in all of the world today. And because it's free, people think it's cheap. Don't ever equate free with cheap when it comes to the gospel of Christ. It's free to you, but oh, the price that was paid for your salvation. The blood of Jesus Christ, the suffering and agony on Calvary, the giving up of 33 years of his life in eternity and coming and condescending to be born in a filthy cattle stall. Oh, what sacrifice, what pain, what unselfish giving of himself. All of that is involved here in this matter of him offering us his grace. Oh, please listen, because salvation and grace is free Don't ever take it for granted. I have had people say something like this to me. Do you mean, are you telling me that because God is acting toward me in grace, Pastor, are you telling me that he doesn't care about my past sins and all the things that I've done? No, I'm not telling you that. I'm absolutely not telling you that God is not concerned about your sin. But what I am telling you is that God has already provided for your sin. I'm telling you that Christ came and took our place. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. And when he did that, he made it possible for me to no longer be judged for my sins. He became my substitute. Christ died for our sins, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. John chapter 1 and verse 29, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was our substitute. He was the lamb of God like the Passover lamb of the Jews that God sent here to the world to take my place. Does, when God offers me his grace, does that mean he's, he's soft on sin? No, it means he has already judged every sin that I ever committed when Jesus Christ came to the earth. Now, you know why people say that so many times is, is our pride wants to receive credit for the good deeds we've done. We don't want a substitute to take, to take our place and to pay our price. And so in our pride, we like to say, look, I know I've sinned, but I've done a lot of good things too. In fact, I've done more good things than I've done bad things. And we kind of like to step up to the Lord and say, now what about all that good that I've done? And listen to me clearly. You don't get any credit for anything that you've done. Because the Bible says that our righteousness, our good deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. And therefore, I get no credit for being a good boy whenever I'm a good boy. 
That has nothing to do. We're talking about two different things. Salvation and good deeds are, are mutually exclusive, as it were, and I'll show you that in a few moments. And so people say to me, well, you know, I want to, what about the good things I've done? It doesn't count towards salvation. Why should it count towards salvation when Christ has already paid the whole price anyhow? We've all been raised on this merit system, and we want to bring our merits to, to God, and he doesn't want our good, he doesn't want our merits. You see, when I was a little boy, my mother put a chart on the refrigerator, and if I brushed my teeth and made the bed and did a few things like that, well, then, of course, she checked it off, and at the end of the day, I got ice cream or something. And then I went to school, and they had another chart, merit system. And if I did my studies and so on, they gave me a gold star. And if I didn't, I usually flunked the test. So all my life, I've been judged on my performance. It's been performance-based. But then, as a sinner, I come before the Lord Jesus Christ. And God said, I'm not interested in your performance. You are bankrupt in terms of what you can do for me. What? I'm God. I created the whole thing. What do I need from you? Now, what I want you to do is accept your bankruptcy. Accept the fact that your merit is of absolutely no value to me. And I want you to accept the righteousness that Jesus Christ accrued for you when he died on the cross. I want you to understand he paid for your sins. No, grace doesn't take lightly sin. Other people say to me something like this. I recently had someone say to me, I just don't feel like I'm good enough, preacher, to accept God's grace. Is salvation, if it's free, I'm just not good enough. There's two or three things wrong with that statement when you begin to analyze that. First of all, it's just another form of pride. It's kind of like saying, I'm not good enough, but someday I hope to be. And you never will be good enough. You never will make the standard of perfection that God absolutely requires. You see, salvation is not by character. Salvation is not by having good character. Salvation is by grace. I say it again. Salvation is the work of God alone, and there's nothing we can do to contribute. Other people reject the gospel because they fail to take sin seriously themselves. And I preach a sermon like this, and people come and hear me, but they really can't seem to grasp the fact that their sin is that serious, that their sin can actually condemn them and cost them an eternity, exiled and separated from Almighty God. And so people say things like this, well, I'm basically just a good person. I just need a little self-improvement. I just need the Lord to knock the rough edges off, and I'll be okay. And what they're really saying is, I don't take my sin very seriously. The thing that brought Jesus out of heaven is not impacting me like it does him and like it does God. A parent says about their child, oh, she's a good girl. She just makes bad choices. What? Why does she make bad choices? 
Why does he make bad choices? Bad choices come because there's something wrong in the heart. The heart is evil, the Bible says, and wicked, and it's the spring of all of our failures. She's a good girl, but she just makes bad choices. No, the spring itself is polluted. The heart pollutes the whole thing. I was talking to somebody in my office the other day. They had come in, and we were, I was trying to help them with their spiritual life, talking to them. I guess we talked for over an hour. I was trying to show them that what we have made up is a list of things that are bad, you know, don't get drunk and don't beat your wife and all that stuff. We got our own little Baptist list. And that's not really our problem at all. In fact, I think it's diverted us from what the real problem is. I told the person sitting in front of my desk, I said, you know what? And I found out this to be true more the longer I live and the older I get. I know y'all look at me now as he's pastored 47 years. He's an older man now and Boy, I tell you what, he's stayed out of jail so far and never ran off from Norman. And I know he pays his debts and he's a, oh, he's a righteous man. Oh, you ought to come and live in my heart for a day. You see, the things that really bother me, I can hide from you and every other human being and you can hide from everybody else too. And we all hide them. And I told the guy sitting in front of me, my problem is not going down to the bar and getting drunk tonight or sniffing a little cocaine on the side. I can do the things that will absolutely contaminate my soul and sit right here in this chair and play pastor while I'm doing it. The Catholics talk about the seven deadly sins. Greed. Covetousness, anger, bitterness, pride, envy, jealousy. Lust. Anybody here guilty? Mm -hmm. And I can do that all sitting in my pastor's chair behind the desk with my suit and tie on, looking good on the outside, but inside, sin is serious. Sin is serious. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And who can know it? Jeremiah 17 and 9. Good question you might want to ask yourself if you're ever doing a little introspection and really looking down inside and concerned about the God that you're going to meet in a few years, concerned about how that meeting is going to, what's going to happen in that meeting. Here's a good question to ask. Have, have I ever been seriously convicted of sin? 
have I ever been seriously convicted of my sin? And when I can say yes to that, good chance then that I understand God's grace. How far he had to reach to take somebody as unworthy as I am and make them his child. Salvation is the work of God alone. Verse 9, go with me further. Number 2, salvation is God's work done in God's way. Verse 9, by grace are you saved through faith. That's God's way. God's way is the way of faith. It's the way God has chosen for us to, to obtain our salvation. In fact, the only condition that God puts on salvation is faith. James Kennedy, great preacher from Florida, used to say it like this in his EE program. He said, faith is like a beggar who gets down on his knees and he reaches out his empty hands and he asks the Lord to give him the gift of grace and salvation. And he emphasized the emptiness of our hands, that there's nothing that we have to offer to God and that faith is is simply the act of saying, I come to you, Lord, and I now begin to put my belief in you, my trust in you, my confidence in you. All of those are simply synonyms for the word faith. Here's the way I, I was sitting talking to my wife sometimes. You know, I preach my messages to Norma on Saturday sometimes before I preach them to you on Sunday. And we were sitting at the little uh, breakfast table there and I was preaching to her because Norma requires a lot of preaching to keep her straight, see? So, so I'm, I'm preaching there, and I'm trying to explain to her. I said, here's what I think is a good illustration, honey. I said, picture the city water supply. Here's the reservoir out here. Here's the river. Here's the lake. Here are the deep wells, all the sources of water from which we get our water in Florence. Now, that represents grace, Grace. Grace is the reservoir of God's amazing grace. It's an ocean sometimes it's been pictured. And I said, you know what faith is? Faith is the pipe that comes to my house through which the grace flows. Maybe that's a mental image that you can remember. And uh, when you think about your when you think about the idea of faith, faith is the pipe through which we receive the grace of God. You're not saved. Because of faith. Faith does not save you. Faith is the way that God's grace can come and save you, that Calvary comes and saves you, that the blood of Jesus Christ saves you. And faith is the empty hand of the beggar reaching out to receive that grace. Faith is the pipe into which grace can flow into my life and into my heart. And when I'm saved, saving faith is this. Now listen to me, because I, I'm telling you in this statement how you can absolutely know your faith is a biblical faith. Faith is not a general, yes, I believe, yes, I have faith, yes, I'm trusting in some generic way. No, faith is a specific, intentional choice. I am deciding right now to accept God's offer to trust what Christ did for me and to cease any effort to save myself. Faith, let me say it again, a specific intentional choice 
to accept what God has offered me through grace and trust what Jesus did on the cross to be payment enough and then to cease any effort at all to try to save myself. Faith is the little girl, three years old, standing up on the ledge about that tall. And daddy says, here, honey, jump. And the little girl jumps down into her daddy's arms because she trusts him. She has confidence that he will catch her. She believes in him, faith, and she ceases anything she can do. She releases her body. She just falls out into the air, into the arms of her father, knowing that she's going to be safe. And that's what faith is. I hear the gospel and I say, you know what? I, I cannot save myself. My sins have overwhelmed me. I try, I confess my sins, I try to get right with God, and then bang, I fall again the next day or the next hour sometimes. And so you know what? I'm just going to cast myself into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, come unto me and I'll give you rest. And when I do that, then that's saving faith, saving faith. I want to analyze faith just for a moment with you, just a little more deeply, because I think people use faith in all kinds of general ways today and never get down to the, the nut of it, down to the heart of it. There are three elements that compose faith. And maybe you'll write these in the back of your Bible or something because you need to remember these. There are three things that compose faith. What is faith? First of all, there's the element of knowledge. Faith depends upon knowledge. Faith involves the intellect. Faith involves the mind. And knowledge is really the foundation on which faith sets. You see, in order to have faith, I must know something about the one that I have faith in. If I'm really going to trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I've got to know something about Jesus Christ. Some vague idea of, well, that Jesus Christ, and I don't know who he is or what he, that, that's not saving faith. I've got to, my faith has got to be foundationed and rest upon some facts, some knowledge. And so we open our Bible and we find out that Jesus Christ was the virgin born son of God. We find out that Jesus Christ lived in eternity past before he ever came to the earth, that he's God in flesh. We find out that when he was on the earth, he was the only man who could live a complete, full life for 33 and a half years and never sin one time in word or thought or deed. We see that he had great power, that he did miracles, raising the dead and healing the sick and doing all sorts of miraculous and supernatural things. And then we hear that he went to the cross, an innocent man taking upon him the sins of all of the world, and for agonizing hours he suffered as nobody ever did for our sins. And then when he was dead, they put him in a tomb, and three days later he broke the power of death and rose from the dead. And now he's in heaven. He ascended back to heaven for us. That's the facts. That's the facts. That's the person I'm asking you to put your faith in today and to trust with all of your, with all of your being. And you see, the more I know about him, the more I'm able to trust him. 
I'm dubious when people talk to somebody for three minutes and say they got saved. Did they really understand what they were trusting in or who they were trusting in? Did they know enough to have a sound faith based upon knowledge? You can't have faith without knowledge. Romans 10, 17 says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When you come to church here, the reason I always say to you, open your Bible and we turn in the Bible, and I preach like I'm preaching right now, pouring my heart out to you. I'm trying to say to you, the one I'm talking about is worthy of your trust, that you can trust him. You can put your confidence. You can rely on him. You can depend upon him. The second thing you need to know to have true faith is there's got to be an emotional component. It's not just a dry, dead, intellectual, yeah, okay, I understand who Jesus was. But since we are emotional people, our emotions are stirred when we hear the gospel. When I preach evangelistically, I try to go for people's hearts, not just their heads. I want them to feel an urgency. I want them to feel an emotion. True faith is built on knowledge with emotion, because that's part of my soul. And when I hear about Jesus, it stirs within my heart feelings of, I could trust that man. It stirs within my heart feelings of love. Oh, if he died on the cross for me, I ought to love him more than anybody else in all the universe. It stirs within me desire. I want to be one of his. I want to stand with him. You see, it stirs my emotions. It's not just that I know some facts, bang, 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 bang. The danger of growing up in a church like this is is you accept all those facts, but you never commit yourself. There's not that desire, that heart there that we always have to have. So people may respond in different ways, but it's always from the heart. I've told you about my own childhood salvation experience. My mother reading me Bible stories. And she read those stories to me. I don't, I don't mean to sound boastful, but by the time I was 10 years old, I could start in Genesis and tell you every story sequentially. I could take you all the way through the Bible. Knowledge. See, I knew some facts. And then she showed me a picture in that old Bible story book of that cross and the Lord Jesus hanging there and blood running out of him and the crown of thorns on his head. And I said, Mama, why do those old mean men do that to Jesus? And she said, Son, because of your sins. And no, you haven't gotten out and done a lot of bad things, but your sins are what you are more than what you've done. And I prayed to receive Christ. I didn't understand the theology. I didn't understand all the stuff that I do now, obviously. I understood this, that Jesus was God and he died for me. And my heart, little heart was stirred and tears ran down my face. And I said, I want to be with him. 
I can trust him. He's the best man that ever was, and he's God, and I'm going to put my confidence in him. And as little as I knew about it, I believe that God saved me. Three things compose, three elements compose faith, knowledge, emotion, and the will. We call it volition, another word for the same thing. The will means that I surrender. I no longer resist or struggle. I give in to the fact of who Jesus is and what he's offered to me. He has made a simple offer, and now I accept the offer. He has said to me, you come unto me, and I'll save you. Whosoever will may come. And I say, I surrender. I will. Hand me the pen. Where do I sign up? It's an act, a decision, a specific decision to put my faith and confidence in him. And while I'm doing that, the other side of it is that the Holy Spirit is working within me when I hear the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is producing a new nature within me. It's a miracle. John 3 calls it the new birth, being born again. And so... While I am putting my faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is making me new. No works are involved. No human effort is involved. Salvation is of the Lord working in me. I hear people say it's easy to be saved. And I've come to where I, I don't, do I believe that or not? Because it's not as easy to believe as you hear preachers say it is. Sometimes it's been hard for me to believe. I'm speaking honestly. I think you know that, and I think you believe that too. Sometimes it's hard to believe. You see, I'm asking people to believe in a God they've never seen. I'm asking people to believe in something that happened 20, almost 2,100 years ago now. How do I believe in something I've never seen with my eyes? How do I believe in something that happened so long ago, I say, is it even relevant today? And so I pray in my heart like the man in the Bible, Lord, I believe Help thou mine unbelief. I believe, but Lord, I don't believe like I want to believe. You give me the gift of faith. You help me to believe fully and completely and totally. And lastly, salvation is the work of God alone. Salvation is God's work done in his way, meaning through faith. And lastly, salvation is God's work done in God's way, according to God's will, verse 10. Look at the end of verse 10 in your Bible. It says, he has ordained good works that we should walk in them. Where does this works thing then come in to play for us as Christian Christians? You see, it's God's will for me to live. Now, listen to me carefully because there's a lot of confusion here. 
Listen carefully. God's will is for me to live a life of good works. He has ordained them that I should walk in them, it says. Look at the word workmanship in the middle of verse 10 there. We are his workmanship. If you study that word in the Greek language from which it was translated, workmanship means a product that he made with his hands, a handmade product. And sometimes it's translated poem. We are God's poem. And sometimes it's, ta- it's translated a tapestry. We are God's tapestry, like he's weaving a picture And we don't know what the picture is, but our lives are a picture, and God is directing the events of life and weaving a a beautiful picture. And so God is creating us as Christians to do good works. Works have nothing to do with my salvation. They have everything to do with whether I'm going to please him after I am saved because he's working in my life. And the person who says, I just have faith. That's all I need to do. I don't, you don't have to worry about works, do you, preacher? No, listen to this statement. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. I say it again. We are saved by faith alone, but not by the kind of faith that remains alone. God saves us for and to do good works, not by our good works. Works are the result of being saved, not the cause of being saved. And things, God begins to change my life when I genuinely am converted. I soon begin to experience changing affections, changing of my habits and attitudes. Things that used to appeal to me don't appeal so much, and things that didn't used to appeal at all, now they are things that I grow to love, and God is using me. And good works are coming out of that. I'm not doing them in order to be saved. The more that I know him then, the more that I trust him, and the more I love him, and the more I love his people. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is God's gift to us. It is not of works, so that we can't boast about it. But once we're saved, he saved us to do good works. Bow your head with me, if you will, please. Heavenly Father, today, I've done my best to try to just explain the simple plan of salvation from these wonderful verses, to explain to people what grace is and means. And also, Lord, I have attempted to take them logically through this process, but to stir their hearts with a desire to have saving faith in you. Oh, God, I pray that where people today are not saved or they're not sure they're saved, that they will decide today to accept your offer of salvation. With with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, 
I wonder how many people in the room right now either have serious doubts or you know that you're not saved. I want to give you a chance to pray a prayer with me and in that prayer to invite Jesus Christ to come in and to save you based on nothing but pure faith in Him. You're making a specific, intentional choice to trust in Christ and Him alone, to transfer your trust to Him from anything you can do for your salvation. And then in the future, to depend upon what you did in this moment in this church as being the time that you were saved. So many people, it's nonspecific. It happened somewhere long ago. It happened without anybody ever explaining salvation. And hence, they have doubts, and they really wonder in their soul of souls. Let's get it tied down today. What do you say? If you're not sure of your salvation, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Just pray it under your breath, silently. You don't have to say it aloud. Heavenly Father, in this service, I have realized I need to be saved. I know I have sinned. Forgive me of my sins. I put my faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. From this moment, I'll trust nothing but what you have done for me on the cross and through your resurrection. I invite you into my life and accept your offer of grace. In Jesus' name, I thank you for this. Amen.